What's good, everyone, and welcome back to the Windy City Hoops Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Rouse, coming to you from my hometown of Chicago, Illinois, from the Windows 616 Production Studios, getting ready to bring you another review of The Last Dance, the third installment of the documentary that is airing on ESPN covering the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s. And before we jump into this week's review of episodes five and six of The Last Dance, let's remind you guys of the Windy City Hoops podcast being available on social media. The Windy City Hoops podcast available on Twitter at WCHP Network. Once again, Windy City Hoops podcast available on Twitter at WCHP Network. Also available on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Windy City Hoops podcast. Also, you can catch me on Twitter at King Rouse 21, K-I-N-G-R-O-U-S-E 21. Also available with that same handle on Instagram as well. And also catch my other show, Students of the Game, which airs Thursdays on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Students of the Game. We've been doing some socially distant episodes, meaning we've been doing them on Zoom and posting them on our Facebook account. But uh, go to facebook.com forward slash Students of the Game Chicago to figure out when we air episodes of Students of the Game. Sometimes it's 7 p.m., other times it's 7.30 p.m. But you can check the Facebook page, once again, at facebook.com forward slash Students of the Game to be updated. And also follow the show on Twitter at SOTG Chicago. All right, we get into this review, the the third review of The Last Dance for Episodes 5 and 6 here on the Witty City Hoops podcast, which can be found on multiple platforms, including the one you're listening to right now, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or Stitcher, among other platforms. Spread the word. Witty City Hoops podcast available on multiple platforms. But coming into this review, this third review of The Last Dance for Episodes 5 and 6, I, I was trying to figure out how to how to format this show. And, and I know I'm dropping this review off a little bit late. Well, really a lot bit late because the next day here is, is Monday. And I'm recording this. Monday evening and I'm recording this. And I really just had a hard time formatting how I wanted to t- how I wanted to talk about the installments of this week's episodes of The Last Dance because The Last Dance this week was so good that I've watched it th- I've watched it three times since it aired live. I watched it I watched it live and then I watched it again late last night. So I get, so I guess that's twice since it aired live. But I've seen it three times. Like I, I watched, I watched it live. I watched it late last night when I was still trying to figure out how I wanted to format the show. I watched it again before I actually finally sat down and put the headset on here to try to give you guys this review. And the reason why it was so hard for me to really format how I wanted to do this review is because this this week's editions of The Last Dance really had one singular focus. Usually, they give you a lot of different things that you can take home. It, or, or they give you a lot of different things that you can really go into in depth and break down. Not to say that they didn't do that this week, but this week's episodes, the singular focus of this week's episodes was Michael Jordan, global icon. And from the gate, they it, it immediately went into Michael Michael Jordan, the global icon. Pretty much the rise of the rise of the Air Jordans, how he became the most recognizable face in the world in terms of pro sports at the time he was playing, how he became the face of the dream team, how he influenced the generation following, which is where they started off with 
talking about his relationship with Kobe Bryant. The show began with a tribute to Kobe Bryant in love in loving memory of Kobe Bryant. And then into the last dance itself, they started at the 1998 NBA All-Star Game in Episode 5. And it was the setup for Michael Jordan's relationship with Kobe Bryant because that was at the time to be Michael Jordan's last All-Star Game when he played for the Bulls at Madison Square Garden in 1998. But also, it was Kobe Bryant's first NBA All-Star Game. And it really goes into how Jordan influences the next generation with the interviews they had from Kobe Bryant in the interview, Kobe, excuse me, in the documentary, Kobe Bryant in the documentary, he was quoted as saying MJ was like his, Michael Jordan was like his big brother. And Kobe in the documentary said he hated the one-on-one comparisons to, to Michael Jordan because without Michael Jordan, he doesn't get the five championships because Michael guided him so much and gave him so much advice. And when I heard that, it immediately made me think about when, Kobe passed away earlier this year and then they had his uh they had his ceremony at Staples Center and Michael Jordan was quoted as saying losing Kobe was like losing a big part of himself it was like he lost a little brother so it it, it showed that yeah even even though in sports when you have two guys that are considered the alpha of their generation people always sort of getting sort of get into the natural theme of hey I wonder if Michael Jordan could be Kobe. I wonder if Kobe could be Michael Jordan. Kobe said he hated that because he felt that Michael Jordan was like his big brother. And that's also a bit of a difference between Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Kobe said he didn't he didn't like the comparison to Michael because he was like his big brother. But as was established earlier in the series and earlier in one of the earlier episodes, Michael Jordan said his brother Larry was the inspiration for his competitive streak because he always felt like he was competing for his father James's attention. So that that was that's something a little bit that that's a little bit different about the two, but as many people would say, different different beasts, same animal or same animal, different beasts. However, however it's phrased, with the two, how they both how they both just have that mentality to go out there and win games. And Kobe Bryant in in this show, The Last Dance, he said that Michael Jordan was one of his driving forces because he would see him all the time. So he was one of the players he would look up to. So then. When he finally got to the league, and it was tough for Kobe to break in because you got to remember, high school players at that time, this was at the beginning when high school players were starting to really break in. I know you see a little bit more of that in the following years after 98, so around like 99, 2000, in the early 2000s, you see a lot more high school guys come into the league. But Kobe Bryant, as a high school guy, trying to find his foot in the NBA, he sought out Michael Jordan, including the game they had in the, during the 97-98 season. With, which features the iconic picture of the two standing side-by-side, side, shoulder to shoulder, at the United Center where Kobe Bryant was asking Michael Jordan for advice. I know in the uh, documentary, Kobe said he asked Michael about his uh, post-up game. I remember seeing that game from, 90, from the 97-98 season at the United Center where we got that iconic shot, and Kobe said he asked Jordan. I remember Kobe Bryant muse. Kobe Bryant said he asked Michael Jordan about how to feel the defenses. It was something to the effect that Michael said that he uses his legs to get a better feel, and then he could, then that way he knew how to attack and how to approach the defense. So it was just those type of things that Michael Jordan helped Kobe Bryant with, just giving him advice to help his growth and help him become essentially the Michael Jordan of his generation through the 2000s. And then, of course, now, of course, now some would say LeBron James was the Michael Jordan of the Kobe Bryant of the 2010s. Some would say he's still, LeBron James is still that now in 2020. 
different debate for a different day. But the point is, Michael Jordan helping Kobe Bryant sort of helped Kobe Bryant fill in a Michael's sort of fill Michael's shoes in the 2000s when he became known as the most recognizable NBA player in in the in the world. And then also, it made me wonder for Kobe to say that Michael gave him so much advice. It made me wonder, like, did did he reach out to Michael during the NBA Finals? And like the two in the two thousands when Kobe was into his first finals when he was on the Lakers or even some of his finals in the late in the late two thousands, could Kobe have reached out to Michael when he had some of his legal issues? Because now Michael Jordan didn't really have anything that was necessarily a legal issue, but as this week's episodes go along, you see some similarities to Kobe in the sense of Michael was very worn down. He was very much worn down from all of the outside distractions that come with being a global icon. And that's where episode five, episode five really takes us to that point of Michael Jordan, the rise of the cultural or the cultural icon, the global icon. And then episode six really sort of takes us to the, to the point of the 19, the, to the point where he ends the 1993 season with the NBA championship. And then it leads into the 1998 NBA playoffs, which is likely where they're going to pick up with The Last Dance when they return next week with episodes seven and six. Going back into Michael Jordan, the, his sort of his rise to becoming a global icon, they go back, they, they go to the game that occurred a month later after the 1998 NBA All-Star game. His last game at Madison Square Garden as a member of the Chicago Bulls on March 8th, 1998. And it really provides the backdrop to Michael becoming the cultural icon by giving the storyline that Michael Jordan wore his original Jordan 1s, the 14-year-old the pair of sneakers that he wore in 1984 in his first game in Madison Square Garden. He wore them in his what was supposed to be his last game at Madison Square Garden as a member of the Bulls. As we know, that wouldn't be his last game because, if I'm not mistaken, I think his first game back, actually, when he was a member of the Washington Wizards, was at, uh, was at MSG, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was like early 2001, so that would have been the 2001-2002 season. I'm almost certain like that was his first game at Madison Square Garden, but don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure off the head right now. But they go into that game, and Michael Jordan pretty much tried to do the uh, the sort of what Jay-Z said in Encore. If you, for those of you that listen to Jay-Z, grand opening, grand closing, he kind he tried to do that with the with the Jordan 1s. He, he didn't say that, but that's – Really, pretty much what he did. I mean, he wore the Jordan 1s in game one in the first game he had in Madison Square Garden. He was going to wear them at his last game at Madison Square Garden, and he said he, that was his favorite place to play. So he wanted to bring them back out. At this point, the documentary takes that, it takes that traveling timeline back to 1984 where Michael Jordan's agent, David Falk, he, he's tried to make Michael Jordan a recognizable athlete through endorsements. And the actual... The actual influence comes from uh, tennis player Arthur Ashe, actually, is what uh, David Falk said, because Arthur Ashe had his own shoes. He had his own, he had his own tennis racket, his own branded tennis racket. So David Falk's idea was to try to make Michael Jordan the team player version of that. He wanted him how, how Arthur Ashe was an indi- a, pl- a player of an athlete of an individual sport. He wanted to try to make Michael Jordan a player of a team sport, sort of, have those same endorsements. And the first deal that Michael Jordan got was his sneaker deal, which, as we know, he got with Nike. And actually, the interesting thing about that was Michael didn't even want to sign with Nike. 
in the documentary, Michael said that his mother, Dolores, actually made him go to Nike after uh, Jordan wanted to go to, he actually wanted to go to Adidas. But uh, what David Falk said, Adidas was a bit of a dysfunctional brand at the time, so they would love to have Michael, but they just really just couldn't put their, couldn't really like put the right thinking caps on to get it, to get him signed. Jordan also was shopped to uh, Converse, but uh, at the time Converse sort of declined. Michael just said like they would love to have him, but he wasn't going to be placed over some of the quote bigger name athletes at the time because you got to remember Michael was a rookie when he was being shopped around for these endorsements and so therefore his mother told him hey let's go to nike he didn't want to go but the nike pitch worked and the rest is history because we have air jordans which at the time was named based off the new air sole technology that nike was using in their running shoes and from that point michael michael jordan the the icon sort of really took off i mean they they said that it was supposed to be a four-year plan I can't remember the exact number. They said they wanted to sell about three million Jordans in the in the four years, and then David Falk said through the after the first year, 126 million Air Jordans were sold. So it pretty much set the tone for athletes in endorsements. So Michael Jordan, the icon, sort of setting the table for what we see now. When we we see players like we we see a guy like LeBron James, you see a Stephen Curry, you see these guys with their own shoes, and it sort of goes back to that. How at the time Michael Jordan was a rookie and he was getting paid, according to uh, Nike executive Harold White, he said that Michael Jordan would have probably gotten a he got two hundred and fifty thousand. Meanwhile, most other guys at that time would maybe get a hundred thousand based on the the deal they signed. But Michael got two hundred fifty thousand. He was only a rookie that hadn't even played yet. But for Michael, his his thought on the shoes was that the shoes were sort of just there. His motivation was his actual play. And he said that had he been a player, Michael Jordan said, had had I in Michael Jordan's own words, had I been a player that averaged two points and three rebounds, I never would have signed anything with those shoes. So Michael Jordan, ever the competitor, which, as you know, is a recurring theme of this series, it comes up often here. He Ever the competitor is all about what's going on on the floor with Michael Jordan, and that's why he said that he signed the agreement to get the shoes. He he said that was sort of the, the, the play on the court was the driving force. The shoes was just sort of a way to make some money, but the way he played is what drove him, and of course, being that good on the court sort of drove the sale of the shoes because it's like you want to be, which where we're going to go eventually at some point, you want to be like Michael Jordan. And at this point, the documentary takes his trip back to 1998, Travels back to 98, that game where Jordan breaks the shoes out. The 14-year-old shoes, he put up 42 points at Madison Square Garden in a game where he said he couldn't take those shoes off fast enough because at halftime of that game, he said his feet were bleeding. He said his feet were bleeding because the shoes were so bad. They were so they were so old and they, they were so tight on his feet. But the problem was with Michael, he was having a good game, so he didn't take them off. But he did take them off at the end of the game. He said he couldn't get them off fast enough. They even showed the interview he had with Amara Rashad where he said, my feet are killing me. He gets into the locker room. He takes the Jordans off, the Jordan 1s off. And, of course, Patrick Ewing comes into the locker room. Patrick Ewing, of course, the legendary big man for the for the New York Knicks. He comes into the Bulls locker room pretty much to say good game to Michael Jordan. I mean, Jordan and Ewing were friends. That, that was noted back in the old uh, Michael Jordan airtime video based on the 1992 season. He even talked about that. 
where he said that, yeah, him and Patrick Ewing were really good friends, but because of how hard the Bulls and Knicks would go at it, he would be ready to come to blows with Patrick. But they were really good friends, and in 98, Ewing came into the locker room to say good game, and Michael Jordan, in typical Michael Jordan fashion, had to be just couldn't let the competition go. Had to go. All, he he told Patrick Ewing, had to go back to '84 to whoop y'all ass. And of course, Patrick Ewing, not a fan of that, said, "Don't start that shit with me, man." And Michael Jordan, just ever the competitor, man. Just even even when even when he's he's got you beat, he still wants to keep the foot on your neck. That's something that Magic Johnson said. Magic Johnson would end up saying that in episode in the same episode, episode five of the documentary, talking about their card games when they were members of the Dream Team. He was talking about how they would play each other in card games, and if Magic won, Michael would want to keep playing until he won. And then even once Michael won, Michael will keep wanting to play Magic. He, and Magic said, well, man, it's mad enough you already beat me. You want to put my foot on your neck. You want to put your foot on my neck too. And that's just how Michael Jordan was in terms of his his competitive spirit. They they addressed that very well throughout the documentary. Will Purdue Will Purdue in episode six even said that Michael Jordan's life is just nonstop competition. And they they get more into that. And that leads into the uh, gambling issues, which I'm going the uh, gambling accusations, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But from this point, the documentary travels back to 1992, of course, with Michael Jordan and the Bulls winning the NBA championship over the Portland Trailblazers. And uh, one of the. One of the big takeaways there, they don't they they really kind of gloss over the uh two championships that the Bulls had in 92 and 93 in the documentary like like they they don't get me wrong they show the highlights but they don't really give you anything too much in depth on the series but the most one of the more interesting things that I saw in terms of what they when they talked about the final series was Michael Jordan his thoughts on Clyde Drexler where how he and Clyde Drexler were both the, supposed to be the two best players in the league during 91-92. I mean, Clyde Drexler had Portland, and Portland had 57 wins, second-best record. were tied for second-best with the Cleveland Cavaliers in the league that year, and the Bulls had won 67 games. And Jordan said, look, Clyde Drexler wasn't a threat. And what he, what he said, what he meant was not that he wasn't good, but he wasn't a threat to me, meaning he wasn't a threat to being the best player in the world. So Michael Jordan said that that fueled – that fueled his his energy when they took on the Blazers because he he said Clyde was a good player, but for him to be compared to him, Michael said he took offense to that. He took offense to Clyde Drexler being put sort of on that same level as him. And in the finals, Michael Jordan went out, and the Bulls went on to win the 1992 NBA championship in six from the Portland Trail Blazers. And that leads into the... 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, the the Dream Team, and of course, if you got if you're gonna talk about Michael Jordan, you're gonna talk about the Dream Team. You gotta talk about Isaiah Thomas. It's just one of those things you gotta do. You gotta talk about Isaiah Thomas of the Detroit Pistons. Now they covered this last week when the Bulls had beat the Pistons in '91, and Jordan himself even said he still to this day has hate for Isaiah Thomas, but he respects his game. And Rod Thorne and Michael Jordan had a conversation. Where Rod Thorne asked Michael Jordan if he was going to be on the dream, would he be on the dream team? And Michael Jordan pr- pretty much asked him, "Who all, who all going to be there, man?" <laughs> he said, "Who's all playing? <laughs> Who's all playing?" And now, without saying Isaiah Thomas's name, neither, according to how they tell the story, neither said Isaiah Thomas's name in the documentary or in the conversation. And so, supposedly, what was said was, "The guy you think will be there won't be there." And so insinuating that Isaiah Thomas would not be a member 
of the Dream Team. And from here, they go into why Isaiah Thomas wasn't a member of the Dream Team. Jordan himself even said to the two greatest point guards all time, in his opinion, are Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. He respected Isaiah as a player, and it wasn't just him. And from there, Michael Wilbon, who's on ESPN with uh, part of the interruption, interruption and and he, he was on there, and he had what I thought was a very good point. He mentioned how when it came down to the Dream Team, it wasn't just Michael Jordan who didn't want Isaiah Thomas on the team. He mentioned how Isaiah and Magic Johnson had their mix-up in the finals in 88-89, how Isaiah and Larry Bird, who was also on the Dream Team, had their mix-up when the, when the Pistons and the Celtics were meeting the playoffs. He mentioned how Scottie Pippen and Isaiah Thomas had had their issues when the Bulls would take on the bad boys. One thing that I, that was not mentioned that I thought was kind of, that kind of flew under the radar, the Utah Jazz players also had an issue with Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton and Carl Malone. I remember, I can't, I know it was 91. I can't remember if it was in Detroit or Utah, but I know they had a game where Carl Malone and Isaiah Thomas had a mix-up, and Carl Malone, I think, I think he elbowed Isaiah Thomas in the face, and Isaiah Thomas had to have stitches. So uh, Isaiah Thomas, I mean, that alone, without Michael Jordan, that's five guys. <laughs> like, that's five guys. And then you throw Michael Jordan on there, that's six players. That's half the team. That's half the dream team that hasn't that has had some sort of run-in or an issue with Isaiah Thomas. And Michael Wilbon, I thought, had, he made a great point. He said Michael wasn't the only one that didn't like Isaiah Thomas. He said the only issue was Michael's feud with Isaiah Thomas was more publicized. So that was sort of like the low-hanging fruit. That's the easiest one to pick and say, okay, well, and then on top of that, with Michael Jordan being the best, arguably the best player in the world at the time, and you know he has a feud with Isaiah Thomas, it makes it pretty easy to say, huh, Isaiah's not on the team because the best player, or Michael Jordan in this case, didn't want him on the team. And I thought they really did a great job of exploring that in this documentary. Really really going in, they did, They maybe could have gone in depth a little bit more with some of the issues that Isaiah Thomas had with other players like Magic and Bird. We are we know what he had with Pippen. They could have talked about what he had with, U, with going on with the Utah Jazz players as well. But I thought they really they really do a good job of sort of playing sort of playing both sides of the argument here. I think they do a really good job of pretty much saying here, everything's on the table. You look at this and you tell us what you see. You, they pretty much put it out there for you and you make your own opinion based off of what you what you see in the documentary. And I really love the way they use the traveling timeline to sort of compare both both eras of Michael Jordan, like his first three-peat and his last three-peat. And then, of course, they use the, the quote, present-day commentary. So the present day as in the time of the recording of the documentary. They use that and some of the insights from the different people they, that they interview to sort of give you some, some context to what was going on at the time with the issues that, was happening, that were happening during the uh, time period that is currently on display. And in this time, it would have been the Dream Team. And from the Isaiah Thomas issue, they got they go into Tony Kukoc. When Tony Kukoc was a member of the Croatian national team back in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. And Tony Kukoc was supposedly going to be brought in by Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Bulls. And throughout this documentary, you just get the idea that Michael Jordan just didn't like Jerry Krause. I mean... <laughs> In, in episode five, he talked about how he loved Tony Kukoc as a teammate, but the way he was introduced by Jerry Krause drove his energy to sort of make an example out of him. It was something such the same as Scottie Pippen did in the Olympics. 
episode six, he talked about how in the 1993 NBA Finals, he knew that Jerry Krause really loved Dan Marley, who was a member of the Phoenix Suns, and that sort of drove him to just attack Dan Marley and sort of put him on display. He just wanted to do everything he could to make Jerry Krause look bad. And that that was the driving force for the way Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen went out and performed against Tony Kukoc in the 1992 Olympics. And Charles Barkley even, they had a quote from Charles Barkley where he was talking, where he said, Scottie Pippen, Scottie Pippen went out there, he was a little pissed off based off what happened with some of the issues that was going on in Chicago with Jerry Krause. And he said that Scottie Pippen proved that if anybody should be getting money in Chicago, should be getting paid from Chicago, it should have been him over, say, a Tony Kukoc. And from that point, they go into Tony, they go into the two games against Tony Kukoc where Tony Kukoc was pretty much shut down by Jordan and Pippen in, in the first matchup in the group stage of the Olympics. And then in the gold medal game itself, the, Bull, the, the Bulls players go up against Tony Kukoc, but he has a better showing. He puts up a solid performance, and that's when they sort of say, you know what, we think this guy can actually play. He just maybe, maybe he had an off game, but they, they, that's sort of the game where his future teammates, Jordan and Pippen, sort of gain the respect, gain Tony Kukoc's respect based off the performance that he had in the gold medal game against Team USA despite being on the losing end during the uh, 1992 Olympics. Having won the gold medal in 1992, it sort of propelled Michael Jordan into being a global icon. I mean, he, he had already become a cultural icon with all the endorsements, his shoes, with Gatorade, his endorsements with McDonald's and Wilson. But the Dream Team sort of took him to the global icon. It took him to the level of being a global icon and... It was it was sort of set the table for being like Mike, because you see Michael Jordan, you see the excellence that he he has on the basketball court, and you sort of have to have a and what was said in the documentary, you sort of have to have a squeaky clean image, and unfairly to Michael Jordan, no person is like that, and at this point, this is when the documentary sort of starts to make a turn into some of the more controversial moments of Michael Jordan Michael Jordan's NBA career. They, from and it starts with the Dream Team. How after the after the Dream Team won the gold medal, he didn't want to wear the uh, Reebok logo because he obviously had endorsements with Nike. That's where the Jordan shoes Jordan shoes were made by Nike. So Team USA, meaning the meaning all Team USA athletes for the 1992 Olympics, they had the team apparel that was created by Reebok. And after Team USA, the, after the Dream Team won the gold, the gold medal, after the Dream Team won the gold medal in, in basketball, they were expected to have on the Team USA apparel, which had the, the, the Reebok logo. Now, Michael Jordan, what he did in order to sort of surprise everyone, he wore, he wore the apparel, but he wore the USA flag. He wore the American flag over his shoulder to cover up the Reebok logo. And that sort of drew a little bit of ire from people back in the Chicago, back in the uh, United States. He was even reading a report from Harvey Schiller that was saying that maybe the Dream Team shouldn't accept their gold medals. They shouldn't expect the, they shouldn't accept their gold medals if they don't wear the apparel in the uh, in the after in the uh, gold medal ceremony. And Harvey Schiller is someone I'm familiar with in terms of wrestling because I being a wrestler fan he was I believe he ran TNT he was one of the 
he was one of the Time Warner execs. It was, it was something to that level. I know he I know he worked for TNT back when wrestling was prevalent, when WCW was still around. And actually, I was watching a Bulls Nets game from '98 on TNT. I think it was Game Three of that '98 playoffs actually that they're going to probably start with next week, where Harvey Schiller was actually sitting right there with Adam Silver, who at the time had hair, the commissioner of the NBA, and David Stern, who was the then commissioner of the NBA. And so Harvey Schiller, he said that he didn't think that they should accept their gold medals if they didn't wear the Reebok logo. So my, that drove Michael Jordan sort of to challenge to go up. That sort of drove Michael Jordan to the challenge. And he said, you know what? They don't think we should wear them, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to hide the logo, but I'm going to hide it in a way that they won't expect it. And he that that's led to him wearing the American flag over the Reebok logo as he accepted his gold medal in Barcelona. And from here, the Dream Team, the Dream Team really drove Michael Jordan. His performance in the in the 1992 Olympics really drove him to being a cultural icon. At this point, the Dream Team is believed to have been the team to have been the reason why the NBA has gone as worldwide as it is. And it's really hard to argue against that. I mean, when you see the NBA, you 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 see how last summer they had they have their games overseas. They have regular season games being played out the country. I mean, how for years they've had games played overseas, game regular season games being played out the country. And the Dream Team really was the driving force for that. And in the documentary, they cover the Dream Team as sort of being that first sports team, that the first team that sort of brought sports into cultural influence. And then, and then with Michael Jordan being the face of the Dream Team, being the best player on the Dream Team, it sort of took him to new heights. And it sort of brought the pressure of being like Mike all the time on the Michael Jordan. And that's where they go into his his rise as an icon. His rise of the, as an icon continues, and they talk about some of the more controversial issues he had. Like in 1990, North, the North Carolina Senate race with a Democrat, Harvey Gantt, who, who was a black Democrat. And he was going up against a Republican, a Republican candidate who was a white man named Jesse Helms. And in the Senate, or in the race for Senate, Jesse Helms was known to have had some conservative and some some would say racist beliefs about what was going on at the time in North Carolina in 1990. And, and many people expected Michael Jordan to support the Democrat, Harvey Gantt, because, I mean, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You're a black man from North Carolina. He's a black man from North Carolina. He's standing up for social. He's standing up against social injustice. So it makes perfect sense. However, the quote, Republicans buy sneakers too, came out from Michael Jordan. And that sort of, that sort of had a bit of a set, a bit of a backlash for Michael in the sense that it was one of the first times where people were disappointed in him in terms of his public image. They even brought Barack Obama. They brought in... Barack Obama even commented on it, that he understood. He said it's hard to hear that from someone like Michael Jordan, who because at the time Barack is a he he's a young black man trying to come up in politics, and then to hear sort of a a black cultural icon come out and say, "Well, Republicans buy sneakers too," is kind of kind of hard to take that. But Barack also himself said that he understood that Michael Jordan at that time maybe didn't know really how to manage his image like he's really just someone trying to play basketball and he's 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 garnered 
this following and he's gained this image and what is done is now he's he's got to try to be perfect at all times and as many people know as we know and as I know as a human being nobody's perfect at all times or and, and as Michael said himself in the documentary Michael Michael Jordan himself said that he under he said it, whatever he did it would never be enough because someone's always going to be upset and he said that he knew that he drew comparisons to Muhammad Ali because they show a clip and I'm trying to remember I know the I know the last name was McCall I'm trying to remember if his name was Harvey McCall from the Washington Post they show a clip of him talking about how Muhammad Ali would have stood up he would have stood up for social injustice and how he wouldn't have worried about losing losing a dollar for social for social injustice and then they t in hindsight the clip is funny because the guy says that that we will always remember Muhammad Ali. We may not even ever remember Michael Jordan. And I, that in hindsight, that's a funny quote. I mean, especially considering here we are in 2020, watching this documentary from Michael, watching this documentary on Michael Jordan about what he did 20 and 30 years ago. But I, I totally understand the point of the quote. But in hindsight, just to hear that. Like, who will remember Michael Jordan and how we got – it seems like almost everybody, every high-level generational athlete in the NBA is compared is compared to Michael Jordan. Or actually, every athlete period is considered the, quote, Michael Jordan of their sport. The best athlete of any sport is the Michael Jordan of their sport. So to say – to hear that is kind of funny when you hear it in hindsight. Although I do totally understand the point he was trying to say that if you can't stand up if you you feel like you can't stand up for what's wrong, then why should you? Why should we remember you? Why like why should we remember you if you if all you care about is making your money as opposed for standing up for social injustice? But in hindsight, hearing the quote in hindsight is kind of <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it made me laugh. It made me laugh when I heard it, especially considering that we're watching a documentary on the Bulls and Michael Jordan here 20 years later, and. In comparison to Muhammad Ali, here's what Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan himself, he even said he commended Muhammad Ali for standing up and being an activist. But once again, like Barack Obama sort of said, Michael Jordan himself said he never saw himself as an activist. He just saw himself as a basketball player. He was only trying to work on his craft. And while that may be help, while, while that may be selfish and not as helpful as many people would want, he understood that. But that's where his energy was. And that's that's one thing Michael really talks about a lot. He talks about where his energy was. He talked about that with Tony Kukoc. He talked with, with, talked about that with Dan Marley. He mentioned that here about where his energy was at. And he was saying, and he was saying that, look, he, he, he knows he can't be perfect. He only sets examples. And if you don't like something that he says, he says, well, maybe he's not the player for you to be following. He, he it wasn't like a hey don't hey if you don't like it then get out it wasn't like that he was just trying to say like he understood that no matter what no one can be perfect and he's really just trying to essentially just live his life and that's sort of where this documentary goes it goes to a point where you really can start to see especially when they close episode six which is going to end with the 1993 NBA finals you really can see Michael Jordan was really worn down dealing with a lot of the a lot of the issues that came with his growing iconic status being sort of a being sort of the face of the NBA in the early 90s and they wrap up episode 5 with 
sort of hit with with his last game. Excuse me, with his last game in Atlanta, which was at the Georgia Dome. That was kind of interesting to me because I actually, for like a brief moment, forgot the Hawks did used to play games at the Georgia Dome. And in the game at the Georgia Dome, they had 62,046 fans in attendance. And that is an amazing number because <laughs> when you see when you, when you hear 62,000 at a Hawks game, let's put that in perspective. The Atlanta Hawks this season in 2020 were 25th in attendance in terms of games played at the State Farm Center. And they averaged 16,000 fans. So based on their average, <laughs> man. Like, man, 16,000 fans. They averaged 16,000. They had 62,000 come out for one game at the United Center. And I'm sitting here like 16,000. So they'd have to go about four, based off, the, based off average, they'd have to go about four games just to equal or exceed the amount of fans they had at that one game, 62,000 at the Georgia Dome, and they averaged 16,000 now at the State Farm Center, or they averaged that this season at the State Farm Center in 2020, even though I will say Trey Young is starting to give them a reason to turn out for more games in Atlanta. But even even before I even looked up the stats on this, I, just, I remember when Atlanta was good a few years ago, back in like 15, 2015. It just seemed like a Atlanta Hawk, like fans just don't come out. It just seemed like they didn't come out to Atlanta Hawks games. And to see 62,000 people come out to a game at the Georgia Dome, it's like, man, like, man, times really have changed. It just really shows how big Michael Jordan was as an icon. People in Atlanta, 62,000 people to be exact, coming out to the Georgia Dome to see him in his final game in Atlanta against the uh, Atlanta Hawks. From that point, after the game in Atlanta, really sort of just shows Michael Jordan being at being a high sort of being a high level celebrity. He's got a lot of friends. He's got a lot of high level celebrity friends. They showed Jerry Rice saying he wanted to be like Mike, the great the great NFL wide receiver, the great hockey player Wayne Gretzky has some words talking about Michael Jordan. They showed Jerry Seinfeld and Seinfeld said the that Seinfeld was the show of the nineties, the Bulls were the team of the nineties and it was just sort of like a match. And they show they, they show Michael Jordan with all of his high with with these high-level celebrity friends, and then they wrap up episode five with Michael pretty much saying, Michael saying, you know, it's great to be admired and respected when you get to the top, but when he gets along, and here goes that, once again, that competitive streak for Michael Jordan, but when he gets along, all he can think about is that, all he can think about is that ultimate goal. All he can think about is winning, being the best team, being the best player, and being the best team in the world and hoisting that Larry O'Brien trophy. And from there, episode five ends. It immediately goes into episode six, and it continues the trend of Michael Jordan, the cultural icon. And this is probably my biggest takeaway of the two episodes this week. And it, it starts out in episode six. Episode six begins with Michael Jordan in a hotel room. But they interview uh, Tim Hollum, the Chicago Bulls senior director of public and media relations, and I thought this was probably the most telling, probably the most telling part of the direction, and it's probably the part that maybe helped me most understand where episode six was going in terms of how Michael Jordan, as a cultural icon, and how he was as a global, as sort of the global face of basketball, how he was worn down, because Tim How Tim Hollum said, "From you, you got to put yourself in a Michael Jordan shoes. From the sp- from the moment he walks out of his hotel room, Michael Jordan has the spotlight on him. 
He he said he always had the pressure. He always he always had the pressure to be on with fans. So you know how as a celebrity you may be walking down the street, people say, "Hey, Michael, we, can we get a picture?" He always had the pressure to sort of be like, "Hey, yeah, I gotta take a picture." You know, not really any days we can be like, "Hey, man, I'm, I'm kind of not in the mood today." And I know I wouldn't work as a celebrity because that that happens to me often. I'm like, "Hey, man, I'm not in the mood. I just don't want to." You know that you know that would be me. So that's that's why I'm just a commentator and. He's arguably the greatest, you know, player ever. He's the face of the NBA. He's he was the face of the NBA, but he had the pressure to always be on with fans. He would have about five to ten minutes where he would go hang out with what they said. They said he would go hang out with kids. When just he said it would be it'd be fans, it'd be kids, it'd be sometimes it'd be terminally ill kids that would come to the game just to see Michael Jordan, and he said that Michael would sometimes hang with the kids for five to ten minutes just to make them feel just to make them feel like they knew Michael Jordan. And then other times he would see people, and, he st- and then even still, after you handle that, trying to get back to the next level, you still got sort of a swarm of bees around Michael Jordan just trying to follow him. And then this is all before the game, and he still has to perform at a high level. <laughs> he has to go out there, have a big game, because everyone that came to see him, they want to see him perform at a high level. Then after the game, he's got five to ten minutes to cool off, and then he's got to do the media interviews. And once again, the issue with the swarm of bees. So even once the media interviews are over, people that maybe didn't catch you before the game are trying to catch you after the game. And they show clips where he's trying to come out the locker room. And I think one of the security guys, <laughs> the security guard said, hey, I promise you he's not going to run away. Just back up a little bit so we can get him out. So we can get him out of here. And then, and then even though you've got that swarm of bees, that they're termed a swarm of bees in the documentary, a bunch of people trying to follow you, you still got to try to get back to the hotel, and then once you get back to the hotel, you still got another large group of people trying to see you. And then after that, after that, you get to your hotel room, and you got to turn around. You got to try to do it all over again tomorrow. And Tim Hollum, he said, and I thought I, I really like this quote. He said, "I wouldn't want to be like Mike. It's almost an impossible. It's an impossible task because of all the people that you have to try to please. Because you gotta, you gotta always be." Uh, you got to be 100%, 100% of the time. And at the end of the day, Michael Jordan is still a person. And that, he's still a human being. And that's really where they were going in episode six. And before they, after, after the interview with Tim Holland, they showed Michael Jordan in his hotel room with the camera crew. That's filming the last dance. And he said to them, this is not an enviable, this is not an enviable lifestyle. You know, I'm I'm in a position where now I'm confined to this hotel room, and he was saying, you know, it's all nice and peaceful. He he was he was jokingly jokingly told them it was nice and peaceful till you guys get here, but this isn't an enviable lifestyle. I'm I'm confined to this hotel room, and then from there you could see him. And from, this was like the one of the few moments where I felt like I can just see he was done. You can almost see the retirement in his eyes. I know this is from 1998 when he said this. This is going to be the recurrent. The recurring theme of episode six is you can pretty much see the retirement in Michael Jordan's eyes as as the episode goes along based on the topics they talk about. And he simply Michael Jordan in the end of the camera. He just simply says, I'm ready to get out of this lifestyle. I'm ready to get out of this life. No reservations about it. And that's when and then that's when they drop the intro to the last dance and then. Episode six continues and just in his eyes, you can just see like he just was worn down and that will become a recurring theme of episode six. They would get into 
his uh, gambling allegations in episode six, which started with the uh, 1993 Eastern Conference Finals. They, they st- we started in the 1993 Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks when he left when he left New York and went to Atlantic City, and it became an issue because Michael Jordan had previously been linked to Slim Buller, James Slim Buller, who had been on the who had been on trial for drug drug and money laundering, and then of course. The during the during the case, they found the check that Michael Jordan had get, given to Buller, which was for fifty seven thousand dollars for gambling debts. And then, of course, around the same time as the nineteen ninety three playoffs, Richard Esquinas, the former manager of the San Diego Sports Arena, he had a book called Michael and Me, talking about their gam- the gambling addiction they had because they would bet on golf games. And instantly, it it really led into the. It sort of goes into that conspiracy that many people talk about with Michael Jordan. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he didn't retire after '93. Maybe he was suspended, and they just tried to find a good way to, you know, to, to let him walk away. But the, when you really watch this documentary, now when I watch it, you really can just see how this wore like everything wore him down to this point. They, they 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 go into the the gambling issue and it 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 got to a point where Michael said, "Did you know what?" He just refused to talk to the media. He just refused to talk to the media. He said that when he initially talked to him, he said that no, I don't have a gambling problem. I just have a competition problem. And I mean, that becomes evident the more the more you watch the Last Dance. That's evident. I mean, just the stories guys would tell in in the documentary. Will Purdue told the story of how it was John Paxson and B.J. Armstrong, and it was Purdue, Paxson, and Armstrong, and they would play $1 card games, and Michael Jordan would say, hey, can I play? Despite the fact that he would play high-stakes games with Scottie Pippen and Ron Harper, and, and he said that and Purdue said that John Paxson simply asked Michael, he's like, why do you want to play with us? We're only playing for $1. He said, because I want to say that I have your money in my pocket. Just as simple as that. Just as simple as I just want to beat you. I just want to be able to beat, say that I beat you. It's pretty much what what Will Purdue was saying about Michael Jordan. He also mentioned how Michael, as I mentioned earlier, he said that Michael had life was pretty much a competition. It was just nonstop competition all the time. And then that's when he go, that's when he went into the story of how Michael Jordan would pretty much just it be competition all the time. He just or he would just want to make sure he had your money in your pocket. He just wanted to beat you to prove that he could beat you at something, to, and it didn't really matter what it was. And for Michael Jordan in Episode 6, when when all is said and done with Episode 6, it really boils down to the point where he Michael was very fatigued. He was just very fatigued with all of the allegations about, about what was going on with, with his gambling past because, of course, what happened was when he was accused of gambling, it was, is he betting on games? It just seems like that. It, I, now, this is just me speaking from experience. It just feels like anytime an athlete is linked to gambling, it just feels like it always seems to take that route. Like, are they gambling on games? Like, it just sort of always seems to take that dark path. And now you have Michael Jordan, who's supposed to be this squeaky clean athlete, and now he's accused of gambling. And you get to that point where it's like you don't, is get to that point where it's like, man, you don't want to lose your hero. And I thought Ty Boyd, who is a former uh, professor at USC, he was interviewed, 
and he and he 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 had a very good quote. He he said the public has an eye for rise and fall narratives. So the pump the public has a the public has an eye for rise and fall narratives. And with Michael Jordan becoming the icon that he was after 19, the nineteen ninety two championship, it only takes a it's only a matter of time before. Someone either starts to dig up some dirt on you or they start to find some dirt on you or they find some things that just aren't up to snuff that just to prove that you aren't perfect. And they went into from there, they went into the Jordan rules book, which talked about the issues that were going on within the locker room about how Michael Jordan was sometimes getting into fights with his teammates. Like they, they mentioned he had a, a fight with Will Perdue in practice, how supposedly he told teammates do not give the ball to Bill Cartwright. They didn't say Cartwright by name in the last dance, but in Michael Jordan airtime, they did say Bill Cartwright back when that when that film was released back in the early nineties. And they mentioned that. And they mentioned they didn't say Cartwright by name, but but if you've seen airtime, you know you know it's Bill Cartwright if you've seen Michael Jordan airtime. And they even show a clip of Bill Cartwright as they show it, yet they just don't say they just don't say his name. And it was just so the book by Sam Smith, the Jordan rule sort of sort of let people in and sort of pulled that curtain back about Michael Jordan, about who he was off the court. And some people finally saw the other side of, they saw the side that you don't see on TV. They saw, they saw things, they read, they read things about the side of Michael Jordan that he wasn't exactly a perfect individual. And that also carried along with what was going on during the 1993 playoffs with, his, with, with him going to gamble in Atlantic City with his dad. And Michael Jordan even said, Michael even said that. He was saying like, he didn't do anything wrong. He was back in time. He got a limo. He he struggled in the first three three games of that series, but legally he didn't do anything wrong. The only problem that Michael Jordan he was quoted as saying was maybe sometimes he was gambling with people that weren't of the finest character, and he would find that out later. But he never actually did anything wrong. He never he claimed he never bet on games. Even they even show Richard Esquinas, who wrote the book Michael and Me. He too said Michael never gambled on games. He only bet on he only gambled when they played golf and when they played cards. And Michael himself even said, I only bet on myself. Which I know some some could see you could read that, you could hear that and then take that another way. If you if you really wanted to, you could hear him saying, I never gambled, I only bet on myself. And you you could you could hear that and take that another way and be like, So you did gamble, you just gambled on your own game. You know, some you know, some cynical people could take it that way because I'm not going to lie. When I heard that, I was like, mm, I get what he means, but you could take that the other way if you really wanted to. You know, <laughs> like I was, that's, that's just what I was thinking. That's just what I was thinking when I heard him say that. Like, like I, I get what he meant. Like, I only bet on myself when I when I was playing golf or playing cards. But someone could hear that and say, mm, he only bet on himself. So he bet on Bulls games. You know, someone someone cynical could hear that and try to take that another way. But anyway, the point was Michael Jordan, he he just got to a point. Well, he was worn down during the 1993 playoffs. So he, so he had the, so he had the story where he refused to talk to the media. He just outright refused to talk to the media through the 19 throughout the 1993 Eastern Conference Finals. Then when the Bulls finally got to the finals, he had his interview with Amai Rashad where he did it, did the full interview with glasses on, and I, t- I just thought that was funny. Like just did a whole interview with glasses on, like like. It, like it was just fun. It, was, it was really funny because it was those dark sunglasses where you really can't see his eyes. 
So like you really, so you really can't get a read for like his facial. Like I know he's moving his face and all of that. He was moving his head and all of that, but you really can't see his eyes. So, so I don't know, man. <laughs> like you really don't know. Like is he is he drunk? Is he hungover? Like what is he? Re- like you really can't get what he's really thinking. You know, like sometimes when you can't see people's eyes when they talk to you, you you really can't tell their intentions of what they what they're. You know, you really can't get any context off of off of their eyes, and I just thought that was funny. Like he did that interview with no context, like with with, with, uh, with glasses on, so you really couldn't get context off of his eyes. And but that was but that was his uh, break. That was that was what broke his silence in the media. So he finally got away from his refusal to talk to the media, and from there the Bulls went into the nineteen ninety three NBA Finals and they defeated the Phoenix Suns in six games. Honestly, honestly, when I was watching it, I think that Phoenix Suns team is a very good team. But two things about that 93 Suns team. One, I think they wore themselves out just getting to the finals because you got to you gotta think about the Suns. Like, they went five games with the Lakers in the first round. That's back when the first round was best of five. So they had to go to distance with an eight-seed Lakers team. They went six with the Spurs. They went seven with the Sonics in the Western Conference Finals. And then went six with the Bulls. And then in the series with the Bulls, lost the first two games. Won game three in triple overtime. And then they would win again in game five. But to me, it just felt like that Phoenix, that 93 Suns team was a very good team. Probably were equipped to beat the Bulls. But it just felt like, and Charles Barkley even admitted this. Charles Barkley in the documentary said, we lost game one because we were nervous. And when you think about that Phoenix Suns team, you can tell. You can definitely see that they were nervous. They they never led in game one. They didn't lead. They got their first lead of the series in game two, but it just felt like they weren't like they weren't aware that the the final started. It was sort of just one of those things. Like they're a good team, but by the time they played, like they realized the finals had started, it was already too late. And even though yes, they did win game three, Charles Barkley said he refused to let them lose that third game, that triple overtime game, and that was a game that could have easily gone either way. But it just really it just really seemed like the Phoenix Suns, they didn't play like a team that realized they were in the finals until it was too late. And you absolutely couldn't do that against a Michael Jordan led team, especially against Michael Jordan when he averaged forty one points and, and what I think it was eight rebounds and six assists, or it might be reversed. But he, I know he averaged forty one in that final series against the Suns. And that's just <laughs> and that's just man, that's just tough. Like that's just a tough start. We're going up against what many would consider to be the greatest player of all time. And they they show the rap. They show the rap of the 1993 NBA Finals. They show John Paxson hitting the three. And the Bulls won their third straight. They they three-peated. And after the series, and after they, after they win the series, you really could just see on Michael Jordan's face, he just simply looked drained. Like, you could see, like, after he won in 93, they show him in the locker room. He's saying, do I have to do anything else? And, He's he's just he's saying, do I have to sit, do anything else? Otherwise, I just want to sit here. And somebody asked him if he wanted to call his wife. He called his wife on on camera. They show him calling his wife. But when you look at when you look in his face, like just think about the emotions he had after winning the first title. He was crying, hugging the trophy. The emotion he had in '92 when they won it in Chicago. When he was when after they won, he was in the locker room, and then he he ran back out on the floor. He was jumped up on the scores table and was pumping his fist. But then when you see him in 93 after the Bulls win the title, when you see him in the last dance, he really just looks just worn out. Like, you see it in his face. Bob Costas, 
from NBC, he even asked him. He said, was it relief or joy? And Michael said it was a bit of both. And at this time, they showed John Paxson. They showed John Paxson in an interview who who was a member of the Bulls and obviously the uh, longtime uh, VP of basketball operations for the Bulls. But they show him, and he said being around Michael, he was just worn out. He was just exhausted. And he said that joy, he said that he felt like when they won that third title, he said it was more like relief than it was joy. It was like, oh, it was, it was more like, oh, I finally did it, is what it was for Michael Jordan. So he really didn't. So he said just being around him, he didn't feel that Michael really enjoyed that third title based off of everything that he had been through with the gambling allegations, having gone through the dream team, you know, having his image sort of having his image sort of taken a hit. And of, then, of course, you throw into the fact that three-peating isn't exactly easy. It's not exactly an easy task. And, I mean, think about, think about it from Michael Jordan's perspective because Michael himself in the documentary said, yeah, he was physically exhausted, but he, he said, I was physically exhausted, but mentally I was beyond exhausted. And I mean, think about I mean, just think about that. Think about the way physical and mental exhaustion could play against play off of one another in this situation for him. I mean, think about it. You won a three peat, and that's not an easy feat, especially because consider this in '99, excuse me, '91, considering uh, when you put together regular season games, 82 a year. So you play 82 games a year. In '91, they go to the playoffs and they. They sweep the Knicks. They beat Philly in five, so there, so there's another eight. <laughs> and then you play another eight games. Then you play, excuse me, another nine games. And when you when you uh, sweep the Pistons in four, and you beat the Lakers in five. So just just think about what that means. You go 82 in the regular season, three against the Knicks, push you at 85, and then you play the Sixers in five. That takes you to 90. Four against the Pistons takes you to 94, and then you go the five against the Lakers. That's 99 games. Then in 92, you turn around and repeat. <laughs> you turn around and play another 82 games. You go into the playoffs, and you play 104 games, cons- counting the regular season and playoffs because of the three they played against Miami, which puts them at 85. The seven against the Knicks, which puts you at 92, and you haven't even got to the conference finals yet. And then you go two six-game series against Cleveland and Portland, and that puts you at 104. So you so now you've played you've played close to 300 games in in the span of two years. And then if actually I think yeah that does put you at three yeah I believe that is I'm not good, I'm not really quick with the math sometimes come your break anyway <laughs> but yeah it puts you at 300 games right there like <laughs> this 300 games. And then you go to you go to play in the Olympics, so you go to play in the Summer Olympics, so you don't really have an off season. <laughs> so you don't really have an off season, and then you come back and try to three peat, and then you go into the playoffs and you play another hundred games <laughs> because you go the eighty two game regular season, and then Michael Jordan wasn't the guy to re- to miss games. I know he missed a game in ninety two because he got suspended, but in ninety three, I mean he played the eighty he played eighty two. You play the 82 and 93, and then you play Atlanta for three, puts you at 85. You get past Cleveland for four, that puts you at that puts you at 89, and then you play two six-game series. That's 101. 
So you just had three straight years of close to 100 games. I know Michael played, uh, we played 78. Yeah, he played 78, 93, and he played 80 in 92. I know he had suspended for one game in 82. Excuse me, in 92. So he didn't play the full 82 those two years. But, I mean, even with even with 80 and 78, I mean, that's just, what? Like, that's two, that, what is it? That's six games missed. <laughs> that's six games missed. And we're pushing, we're talking about 400 games. And this man had a limited offseason playing with the Dream Team, so he was physically worn out. And then you throw the off-the-court stuff at him with what they talked about earlier, the the public perception of being squeaky clean. You got to try to be that all the time. And then on top of that, when at that at the and then on top of that, when when the story was going on with the allegations, you're in the middle of the Eastern Conference Finals with the gambling allegations. And it was just it was just mentally and physically taxing on Michael Jordan. And you can just see him in the pictures that they show as they wrap up the 1993 portion of the film. And you could just see him. He just he, he was just physically drained as he sat on the floor at the end of the 1993 NBA Finals. And from there, the documentary tr- time travels back to 1998 as the Bulls get ready to go into the playoffs against the New Jersey Nets. And Michael Jordan is in the car with Ahmad Rashad, and he's and Michael just said he just he just got tired. He he was pretty much getting tired of answering the questions of is he going to retire because that's what the '98 season was about. Will Michael be back? Is this the last dance? And he said he was just getting he was really getting tired of it, and he said that he he said that he didn't want to be one of those guys that played too long. He said that he he thought he heard from Patrick Ewing. That Patrick Ewing said that he wanted to be carried off the court. He was going to play until he couldn't play anymore. Michael said he wanted to leave the game two years before he knew he couldn't play anymore. So he said he didn't want to be carried off. He wanted to walk off the floor. But the biggest quote for me that really showed the toll that everything had taken on Michael Jordan during this was actually was was actually right there in episode six, right before the ending, before they make the time travel back to 1998. They show Michael. They they show the pictures of Jordan in 93, and Michael Jordan, in his own words, he says, you know what, if I could do this all over again, I never want to be considered, I never want to, do, I never want to be considered a role model. Michael Jordan said, if I could do this all over again, I would never want to be a role model because it's like a game stacked against me where there's no way I can win. And that's just a very telling quote. It's just saying, like, yeah, it looks great being Michael Jordan. I mean, you're the best player. You were the best player at the time. But when you really dive deep into everything he went through, it really show, it really shows that side of, like, hey, hey, everybody wants to be famous. Everybody, everybody may want to be famous. Everybody may want to be a star. Everybody wants this attention. But are you really, are you really up to taking the toll? Are you really up to the task? of living with the toll that being Michael Jordan can have on your life. And that was what they pretty much were saying in episode six. Episode six was more, was pro- is probably my favorite episode to this point because I really like how they they went in depth into the effects of simply just being Michael Jordan. How it really, how it really sort of wore him down in the first part of his career and now they're setting it up for how the how they're gonna end the last dance. So how how we get to the point where Michael decides that he wants to retire 
from the Chicago Bulls the second time. And, and it's really cool how they, they use the traveling timeline to really show how how both sets of appearances with the Bulls, how his first stint and how, how, how both of his stints with the Bulls are sort of on parallel timelines, how they're, pretty, they're very similar in which he was just worn out from all of the from, from three-peating and constantly winning, and then he was worn out from the gambling, from the gambling allegations. And now here he is in 98. He comes back from the, his first retirement, and here he is again looking for a second three-peat. And now, that, now the big story is what's going on, all of the infighting, all the issues that are going on with the Bulls. And they really leave us off now. As they as they continue to, in my opinion, as they continue to do with this documentary, leave me wanting more, and I'm looking forward to next week. And next week looks like it looks like they're gonna get to the point where we're gonna talk about Michael Jordan's first retirement when he went away to go play baseball. So that so we so it looks like we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into the point where he talks about his retirement. They went into that this week as well. How he said that at some point soon he he could walk away. He had in that interview where he wore the glasses. With Ahmad Rashad, he said he, some point soon he could walk away. And Ahmad asked him, could that be after this season? And as we, we know now, it was after that season. So they're going to go into, they looks like they're going to be heading into Michael Jordan's retirement after the 93 season. They're going to go into his playing baseball. And then on the 1998 timeline, they're heading into the opening round playoff series against the New Jersey Nets, which is actually uh, probably one of my favorite Bulls first round series. I mean, if I had to rank, 90s Bulls first round series. I would probably go uh, 92 against Miami. I I just really love that series. I like I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad had taped like Game Two on VHS, and I I had that tape for years, and then I sought it out on social. I saw the I sought the series out on uh on social media, and then I began to watch that. So so I just really love that series. Uh, that net series would probably like be right behind that. That would probably be my second favorite. Uh, the 91 series against the Knicks is actually pretty boring. I mean, just because the Bulls kind of rolled through the Knicks. So that's near the bottom. Uh, the 97 series against the Bullets is actually pretty good, too. I mean, because you got Chris Webber and Jawan Howard and a, a pretty, actually pretty good, pretty well-balanced Bullets team with Rod Strickland at point guard. But anyway, yeah, you can check that out. And then the 98, like I said, so 98 against the Nets. The series against Miami, another one that's kind of boring because the Bulls kind of run through it. In 96, so if I had to rank Bulls championship first round series, I would go probably Miami in 92, New Jersey in 98, and then I'll probably put the Bullets in 97 third. The 90, I know my last one, my last one will be 91 against the Knicks. That one just really doesn't do anything for me. And then 93 against Atlanta would be before 96 against Miami, so that would be third. And then 96 against Miami would be fifth. And then the last one would be the 91 against the Knicks. Kind of a really a dry series. I mean, the Bulls won game one by 41. So, I mean, yeah, we do have the iconic dunk from Jordan. Again, you know, Jordan trying to shake off Starks and then he dunks on Ewan. But, like, as a whole, that series is, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, it's kind of a snooze fest. I'm just, <laughs> just going to be honest. It's kind of a snooze fest. I mean, Bulls, Bulls pretty much rolled through the Knicks in that 91 playoffs. But, anyway, moving forward with – with the last dance, we'll be back next week with our fourth review. I'll be back next week with my fourth review of the last dance. Looks like it's going to go into Michael Jordan's first retirement, as I mentioned, when he went to go play baseball. And it looks like we're finally getting into playoff time during the 1998 M NBA season for the Bulls. And that's 
looks like that's going to be the, the backdrop for episode seven and eight come next week. Uh, be on the lookout for episode 26 of the Windy City Hoops podcast. You know what? Um, I'm still debating when I want to drop that. I'm not sure if I want to do it Wednesday. I may do it over the weekend. I may put, I may, I may change it up a little bit. I, I know there are some things that, that have been going on at the, in the NBA G League that I want to talk about. I actually had a full show set up for you guys last week, but uh, I really just kind of backed out of that. Uh, I did lose another family member last week. I lost my Uncle Ronald last week. So uh actually I think I, I think that was Wednesday actually. Yeah, so so you know I am already dealing with the loss of my grandmother and the loss of my uncle and it's just uh it's just been a been a rough couple of months but I'm still here trying to give you guys some content really trying to push forward with the Windy City Hoops podcast. Uh uh just follow the Windy City Hoops podcast Facebook page to figure out what I'm going to do with episode 26. I do plan on releasing it. I don't know if I'm going to do it Wednesday. I may push it back to next week or I may do it later in the week I will be back next Sunday obviously with my fourth review of The Last Dance covering episodes 7 and 8 see I didn't say talking about for once see I, I could have said talking about episodes 7 and 8 because I know y'all notice it I, I notice it so I know y'all notice it that I keep saying talking about but whatever anyway <laughs> next week we'll be back with we'll be back talking about episodes 7 and 8 of The Last Dance here on the Windy City Who's podcast and once again, you can follow the Witty City Hoops podcast on social media first on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Windy City Hoops podcast and on Twitter at WCHP Network. I'm available on social media on Twitter and Instagram at King Rouse 21, K I N G R O U S E 21. And then also you can catch students of the game this Thursday where we'll be talking about the last dance there. You can hear myself along with my partners. Dr. Joseph Gregory and Dr. Justin Adams on Students of the Game. Check the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Students of the Game Chicago to be up to date with that. And also follow Students of the Game on Twitter at SOTG Chicago. But until then, this has been my third review of The Last Dance. And we'll be back next week with the fourth review covering episodes seven and eight. So until next time, good morning. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, wherever you may be, and I hope you tune in next time.